This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD history you deserve by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered what we miss out on during our time looking into the second century AD? Well, so did we. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you by London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul Katie Costanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, I love doing these episodes, and are you looking forward to it? Because I am ready. Yeah, I'm definitely ready as well. So this is our What We Missed episode. This is the second time we're doing one of these, and this is to cover the second century AD and while we do look in great detail through history, we give each 10 years its a dedicated episode. There's still things we miss, and there's so much stuff we missed this in the past 100 years, Paul, that we've got a big old list of things we want to go over here. And it's exciting to be look, looking back on the stuff we missed out on. Yes, absolutely. Yes, today we have AD history, what we missed, the second coming. I mean... The second century. So, second century. Yes, yes, indeed. And yeah, the fact of the matter is we said it a lot of times, right? We have to make hard editorial choices. This is the reality of our work. But we do like to take the time and come around and hit upon, though not obviously in the same usual fine microscope that we're able to do on the regular episodes, giving things credit that we think should. And, and once again, we're not even going to be able to cover everything we we missed in this episode, but we'll no. we'll hit on some fun stuff. It's an enjoyable time, and really, it's just an excellent episode. And on top of that, before we lay down the ground rules and all of that, what do you think we missed? What else do you think was worthy of being covered in the second century? Let us know if you're commenting on YouTube or send an email to us or send it out on one of the many socials, because we always like to hear it. And with all of that out of the way, it is time for our necessary, obligatory, now legendary... AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the honor of going first. Awesome. So as Paul said, we definitely don't look in as much detail in these what we missed episodes, but there's still some great stuff. And something I found out about was the invention of something hugely important, which we're still using to this day, though not as much, that's for sure. And this was the creation of paper. Yep. 
Uh, it was in the second century AD where modern paper, at least the forefather to modern paper as we know it today, is thought to have been created. And this was all the way back in 105 AD with uh, Sai Lun. And Sai Lun was believed to be a eunuch of Han Dynasty China. And he started his career as a eunuch in roughly 89 AD. And at this time, the primary writing surface of the Han Dynasty was cloth made of silk. And that sounds horrendous to write on. Just imagine writing on a silk sheet. That sounds so, especially like with like a pen or a quill of that time. It sounds like a nightmare. So uh, Sai Lun had the idea to create a writing surface that he made from old tree bark, the wasted hemp he found around, old rags and fishnets. And he would compile this together and he made what would basically go on to become paper. And this final product was considered vastly superior to the silk cloths the Han Dynasty were using at the time. And eventually this became the standard in the empire as the formula was improved. And then across the entire globe and Sai Lun to this day is still seen as the father of modern paper and it just like we said Paul the whole thing about these what we miss stuff is we can't talk as much detail and there definitely isn't enough in this for a whole section of a normal episode of AD history but just want to give it a reference here is a world of good don't you agree it really goes under the category of all of those things that we take for absolute granted and have taken for granted for thousands of years now, paper, just being able to acquire it, use it very easily, writing on silk. I mean, that sounds like an awful, awful process. Yeah, I mean, I'm even like, kind of curious what implements precisely they were using to make that really work in any way that was remotely legible or usable. I imagine like not even a pen. It sounds like it'd be easy to stitch onto it. Like instead of writing, you stitch all your you stitch all your letters in, or like a th very thin tip paintbrush. Yeah, it would have been it would have been a, a massive nightmare. a massive pain. Yeah, it would have been a nightmare. <laughs> Luckily, Kai Lun, Sai Lun rocked up and created paper. Rocked up, quite a fitting word there, because obviously paper beats rock. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh God! All right, yeah, yeah. You are clipping along today in classic fashion, Patrick. That's one of the great of many, of course, contribution to global posterity in a very meaningful way that, quite frankly, we all enjoy and owe a debt to, even if we don't necessarily know it or think about it all the time. Yes. And so speaking of the Han Dynasty and China, a country known quite well for its large population, you've got a fact about population during this uh, century as well, Paul, I believe. And a milestone a certain population hit in this century. Oh, yeah. And I think th this is interesting because in modern terms, we definitely don't think of it in this way at all. But in 118 AD, the population of Rome itself, not the empire, but the city, surpassed one million inhabitants. And at that point in time in 118 AD, it was indeed the largest metropolis on Earth. That really does speak to just how much the population has grown over the last 2,000 years. And on top of that, all of the various obstacles that have kept it from growing, of course, during that time. I mean, I'm certain that Rome's population most certainly took a hit when you're talking about things like the Antonine Plague, mm. where you were dealing with what, like a 25% mortality rate? Yeah. It's just a, yeah. an absolute nightmare. It might hit a million, but I don't know how long it stayed for. It stayed as a million. You add a little something there, which is today it's only three. 
Yeah, so I'd looked into it. Just This is only Wikipedia's numbers, but the current estimated population of modern Rome, and this is just the city of Rome, yeah. is thought to be just under 3 million. Uh, if you include the wider metropolitan area around Rome, its many suburbs, it reaches about 4 million. But I was shocked to see how little it had grown since 118 AD. Obviously, it's tripled in size, quadrupled in size, but... For almost 2,000 years, you just ex- presume it would have gotten massively big, especially as, like Italy's capital. Like I was shocked to hear what a small population that was. Paul, both me and you come from countries where their capitals have much... Well, I, Washington DC isn't so much... I know it's not the most populated, but compared to someone like New York, usually populated cities. I was shocked to hear that it was only 3 million. And like Paris is only 3, 2 million as well. I was shocked to hear compared to London's 9 million and New York's 11, I think possibly. I, I think was, it's 11 I was just or 12 sho- in the metropolitan 11. area, yeah. I was just shocked to hear how low the population was of these European cities. I thought they'd be equal to London and New York, but that's not the case. No, and it doesn't even compare to some of these in the West, almost completely unknown, say like Chinese metropolises, which, oh my, yeah, you know, are just in magnitude larger, larger than this. It's absolutely incredible. Or, or India, for example, mm. you know, if they look at Mumbai or uh, New Delhi or whatever the case may be, these just enormous populations of people that dwarf this one million from yeah. 1900 years ago in the Roman Empire really does speak to the HD world and the reality yeah. we live in. That's the reason why I thought it was definitely worth noting there. And we're talking about the Romans here really quick. And this was just a little something that I saw, and I was curious to see how familiar you are with the, a piece of Roman construction in your own country called the mm. Floss Dyke. Have you heard of this? The name rings a bell, and that's about as much as I can say. Yeah, apparently originally built in 120 AD. And at present, it is it is actually the oldest canal still in use in the UK today. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. You know, when we think about all these things that the Romans built, aqueducts, canals, roads, all of these kind of things, and you don't really consider that some of it may actually still be used to actually mm. be functional. Mostly they're just well, ruins. You go and look at it and you say, wow, it's amazing how they built that. And you have a million different questions, but very seldom is it part of the active infrastructure. No, that's completely right. I didn't even know about that myself, Paul. And when you hear about all these things, the Romans invented, like you said, like, oh, wow, look at this Roman road. It's like, oh, it's it's basically just some rocks in the ground by today's standard. But here the Foss Dyke was created so long ago and is still so well used that's incredible to know it's been renovated and you know expanded over time you know it's certainly not in its original roman form our Mm. capabilities and the things you need to get through canals have grown significantly i think they've added some locks to it so you know what i mean when i talk about canal locks and i found that fascinating because very seldom do you think of it as still the active infrastructure that and of course you know, this is more of a side note. You also have the Trajan's Bridge, the one that goes over the Danube, yeah, which has been taken damage to some extent, destroyed, and then repaired and built around the same time and maintained for that same reason. So, you know, credit to the Romans. When they built something, they really built it to last. And they didn't even have all of our modern materials and techniques. I mean, goodness gracious. You figure they had to dig that friggin' canal by hand. 
yeah, that would be that'd be so much effort. But they did it. Oh, they definitely did it. And just using ancient spades. I mean, come on now. That that sounds like an awful, awful day's work. I'm yeah. curious how many people died <laughs> trying to build that. <laughs> like, I don't mean to laugh, but you get the idea. Building a dam or a dike or anything like that is still a or a canal of any sort. It's still a vast undertaking today. So doing it almost 2,000 years ago would have been even more like stressful and much more demanding, but they did it. And it speaks to Britain. One of the biggest issues facing Britain is just how old the infrastructure is. Like our yeah. trains are pretty rubbish because they were like built a couple hundred years ago, like so much of like the issues, we just have a bad foundation here in Britain for a lot of our infrastructure. And some of it even goes all the way back to Rome. I still find that very interesting. And, you know, we're talking about essentially <clears throat> digging canals by hand. Interestingly enough, and this is just an aside, which we can do because it's what we missed and it's mm. part of history. Yeah. The White Sea Canal, which was built in the 20s and 30s in the Soviet Union under Stalin, and it was mostly with gulag forced labor. That's not a terrible surprise. But the interesting thing was they had almost, they had very little heavy equipment to do it. So the whole White Sea Canal, which connects, I believe, the White Sea to the Baltic, was almost entirely dug by hand. And the thing that was also interesting about it is that it wasn't i don't believe it was deep enough or wide enough to truly fulfill its purpose and i'm not entirely sure that there's also been a, a tremendous call for it it's not like the like building ca the canal between moscow and the volga where naturally you're connecting the moscow to the volga and then you take the mm. volga all the way down to the caspian sea and it has a definite economic impact based on the areas it serves but even still something that is considered part of modern history that white sea canal dug entirely by hand. They had almost no heavy construction equipment to pull that off. So that it was just an aside. I, it worth, it's, yeah, no, no, worth mentioning. Yeah, some of those, you know, those Stalinist mass labor projects are just, <laughs> uh, one day we're going to get into that, Patrick, and it's, it, it's going to be something of an event. Yeah, yeah, one day. So we've got quite a bit of time to go ahead of us. However, before we reach Stalin's Russia, we arrive at 148 D. And this is when Claudius Ptolemy completes the Algamest. And this was a book, I believe, Paula, you kept saying that you, you did some research into the Algamest. It's a, a, bu it's a, a book. It's a treatise, I think, technically. A treatise, okay. Technically a treatise. Okay, it is basically his view on how the world worked. And there were five main points he covered in this book. Relative to being uh, a celestial body. Relative to it being a celestial body. Uh, he claimed that the universe celestial body is a uh, spherical and moves as such. And he actually claimed the Earth is a sphere, at, which quite a bold statement, I guess, at that time. And don't think he was too clever because he also said that the Earth was at the center of the universe. He said Earth, relative to the distance of known stars, is incomprehensibly small and is essentially little more than an insignificant size of magnitude smaller, hence almost merely a mathematical point. And he also claimed that Earth does not move. Did, did he mean that in the fact that it doesn't spin or the fact that it doesn't go around in a circle? Do you know, Paul? He just thought it just stayed still floating in space. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Based, I'm only going to go on based on my understanding mm. of it. In the course of history, we learn things, we discover things, and then various events happen and we forget them. Mm. This does happen, but he would yeah. have known about this. So it's 
pretty well understood at this point that the Earth is a spherical body. And from everything I can tell, I believe in this case, if the sun and the other planets are, and the other, other stars that he identified, I think he identified something like a catalog of over 1,200 different stars in this treatise, it's all moving around us. So there's no reason for us to move. We're, we're, we're a spherical object in the center, and it's all happening around us, which in theory could account for what they observed in terms of the sun rising and setting. Of course, that's not the way it works. We know that now. But for the most part, that's the idea. The thing, everything else is moving just around us as kind of this fixed point. I could be wrong, plenty fallible in that respect, but I think that was the idea that Claudius Ptolemy was trying to project. And I find it interesting how far we've come. Yeah, it is very interesting how far we've come because some of this stuff Ptolemy got was somewhat accurate, like the Earth being a sphere, but other stuff he was way off off the mark with. We're going to develop or had developed, you know, we're talking relative to the second century here, uh, a great <laughs> many more tools that are going to help us with this sort of thing. But it, he's really working on inherited information in addition to his own findings that have been accumulated over time, because obviously the Chinese are doing some excellent stuff in the second century as far as astronomy is concerned. We talked about that with Zhang Hong earlier this season. And then, of course, you had ancient Mesopotamia, who did a, a great deal in that respect. The ancient Greeks built it on as well. The mm. Egyptians certainly understood it. And when it comes to our just understanding of us as a celestial body, where we sit in the universe, something that I always found absolutely fascinating, when you're navigating on the high seas, which is something that we were obviously doing at the time as a species in the second century, many times they are using celestial bodies for navigation. And believe it or not, well into the 20th century, though we obviously ended up developing some very sophisticated and useful navigational tools and methods, mariners well into the 20th century were still using those same stars for navigation. I, I find that I find yeah. that incredible. How, it could be in 1960 and you're able to bounce messages off of the moon, but you still had certain mariners out there that yeah. was using the stars for navigation. But I find it crazy that like, the stars you see, Paul, over in America are the same stars I see over here in the UK, more or less, or at least the moon, at least that sort of thing. It's just, it is crazy how like a single thing can be seen so far across the planet in two different places. I just, something about that I still find quite impressive. It, it has a very profoundly connecting. Mm element to it though at least I, I i think that way and especially since we're both in the northern hemisphere that helps yes, a lot of course yeah yeah that does help out that, yeah just <laughs> most definitely but something i've always wanted to see is to go spend an hour and very warm in a very warm setting but still able to look straight up in antarctica where there's absolutely no light pollution whatsoever yeah. and taking the or go out in the middle of the arizona desert or, yeah, or somewhere in really in. rural Maine and just be totally taken by it. Have you ever seen an aurora borealis? Yes. Yes, I have actually, not to brag. <laughs> really? You, you've you seen one? Yeah. Um, I saw a few years back, I went to Iceland and saw the Northern Lights in Iceland. Uh, yeah, that would do it. I saw yeah. it once in Northern Maine. Kind of similar. <laughs> I don't know what Maine's like. Very green, a lot of pine trees, a lot of nature, sparsely populated. Iceland's more green than its name lets on. I believe it. Yeah, yeah. Iceland's more green than its name lets on for sure. But no, um, seeing the Northern Lights, no, good stuff there. Oh, yeah. It's it's a breathtaking experience. 
But now we're going to move on to something that I'm actually disappointed that we didn't really get to talk about because this guy is really an exemplar in many mm. ways. He's not just part of the five good emperors, but I think I could count him among one of the very few truly decent emperors. So somebody who took his job very seriously and was not acting in his own best interest. And that, of course, is the rule of Antoninus Pius. And he ruled from 138 AD to 161. We've mentioned him. Obviously, the most notable mention of him is the plague that ended up carrying his name in history, which is really mm. unfair because he died the same year it hit Rome, or even a little earlier, I think, than that. Yes. One of the truly decent emperors, but the, here's the things that are, make him stand out. And I wish I could give him more due attention, but this will have to suffice for now. He grew up in this really rather newly established senatorial family in terms of how the Romans divvied up class. The, the interesting thing about him are a fewfold. First off, he came up very much as what we would call something very much akin to as a rather powerful but highly effective civil servant, a really talented government administrator. That is not something that is very common anywhere at all throughout history. That's a special talent. But the thing that was amazing about him is that he was not some brute. He was not some overly ambitious, willing to kill you along the way kind of figure. And ultimately, he ended up coming up eventually. His family came into providence. Uh, his family came into prominence due to the Flavians. So mm. basically, his parents and his father was a consul, very much supported Vespasian in the whole struggle of the year of the four emperors. And they continued to be rewarded in patronage and powerful positions and moving their family upward due to Vespasian then Titus, and then even the infamous and gross Domitian. <laughs> but what hit for him, at least, for Antoninus, he really benefited from the patronage of Hadrian, interestingly enough, who is, as we know, a, a deeply complicated figure who, uh, good, I suppose, is a very relative term, to say the least. He was good at some things, not so good at other things. No, no, and depending on who you ask, that, that the answer changes a great deal, as we know. But he came up and basically made his name through being a, a quaestor, which is an administrative position, depending on where you are, a mid to high level civil servant. Then he did a couple of praetor posts, and then he even managed to become a consul and then picked up a couple of proconsular appointments. And each of these times, the reason he keeps getting these more powerful positions is because in the case of Hadrian, he's noting that hey, this guy's actually pretty talented at what he does. You know, why not? You need people like that, and you need to be able to encourage that kind of achievement in good government governance. Can't always just give it to friends and family who might not really belong there. Yeah, yeah. And he ascended to the top job when Hadrian adopted him, though there are some stories that Hadrian didn't necessarily think he was, even though talented, wasn't entirely worthwhile to succeed him. Classic classic example of so many of these rulers that have so much power is they just cannot imagine a world without themselves. That's a very classic and reoccurring characteristic. But he did on the condition that he adopt Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus as his own sons, because Hadrian had really taken to Marcus Aurelius in particular. He really saw him as 
the young man that the Empire would need when his time was right. And so that was very much part of how the deal was struck. And between the two of them, between Varus and Aurelius, they obviously ruled as co-emperors for a time, though Marcus Aurelius was by far more interested in the job and quite a bit more talented at it. So it kind of worked out in that way. And the amazing thing about Antoninus Pius is that there's really no record of him ever acting in his own self-interest or the enrichment, aggrandizement, profit, and fun for those people he cared about or relied upon to stay in power by any means. In fact, he very actually seldom left the Italian peninsula at all, which stands in great contrast to Hadrian, who couldn't stay off the freaking road. Yeah. Which is amazing, because if you're an emperor in that place and time, you may want to travel, you may want to see the world, and Hadrian obviously did, but still, it was quite dangerous, to be sure. Mm. To think that he gets all the way to Britain, I mean, come now. Yeah, it's incredible. It, it, it truly is. And so what makes him so interesting, once again, he picks up as emperor and he is also extremely effective. He's a very good administrator. Great example of this is that when he died, the state of Roman finances were apparently in really, really good shape. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is keeping military costs down by having far fewer wars, but we'll get to that in a moment, even though that can be very profitable. And the other thing that was really interesting about him is that he has no military background, not, none at all. That's quite rare for an emperor. At this point, most definitely. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Even his successor, Marcus Aurelius, still does join the army on campaign. Hadrian most certainly joined armies on campaign. And apparently, in his time as ruler of the empire... He never left the Italian peninsula, and it is said that he never got more than, any closer than a few hundred miles to any legion stationed anywhere in the empire. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Tell That's me about it. it. Yeah. Tell me about it. And he was also very well noted, like I mentioned earlier, for minimizing conflict, though this is certainly not completely the case, because what we're going to talk about next will certainly go into that. But... He's really well known for lack of self-aggrandizement. He was not very interested in his own enrichment and being very skilled at what he does. And there are many theories as to why he got the cognomen Pius. One of them is that when Hadrian died, he insisted that he be given divine status and a proper state burial, though there were definitely quite a few in the Senate who wanted to damn Hadrian as a tyrant, and as we've covered in the past. But it worked out in the case of Antoninus Pius. There's also some theories out there that suggest he may have gotten the cognitum due to the fact that he ended up basically giving clemency and pardon to several senators that had actually been imprisoned and punished by Hadrian in his view and in the view of many quite unfairly. So he hmm. was seen as being remarkably fair. Yeah. And I find that really interesting because in a way, you can't make a direct comparison, but in a way it does somewhat resemble a form of governance in, in a very specific way that you and I know quite well, which is that for the most part, our countries are governed by civilians. Yeah. They're in charge of the military, but they're still civilians. Some of them will have a military mm. past, but not always, by no means by always. And when you look at it in the context of the time, so many of these figures that came before him and after them 
were primarily at the beginning military figures or transformed themselves into one when they got there. That was not Antoninus Pius. And in fact, they actually wanted to rename September, which was his birth month, after him. But he actually declined the honor. Gosh, what a humble guy. <laughs> I mean, goodness, it just doesn't happen. And then we get somebody a, a few a few decades <laughs> down the road, like Commodus, who literally wants to rename the entire calendar after himself. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, this is a big contrast. And, and though it is only... A, a brief touch and tip of the hat to Antoninus Pius. He certainly deserved it. But there's something else that Antoninus Pius did, something else that carries his name other than himself, his rule, and the vicious epidemic that came after his time. And that, of course, is the Antonine Wall. Yes. So uh, you're quite right, Paul. This is relating once again to my country. We had, yeah, we had the Foss Dyke that was built in Britain and is still in use today. And then we also have the Antonine Wall that, while like the Foss Dyke was built in Britain by the Romans, unlike the Foss Dyke, it is not in use today. And the thing about the Antonine Wall was it was barely in use by the Romans when they were about. And construction began on the Antonine Wall in 142 AD. And at this time, Hadrian's Wall was firmly established as Rome's northernmost border. Antonine Antonius Pius wanted to go further, and under his reign, he moved further north up the island of Great Britain, way into modern-day Scotland. And it was at this more northern point that a new wall was constructed. And it was very much like Hadrian's. It had forts on either side. It had mounds on either side for extra protection and forts across it just to keep it, to give the soldiers somewhere to live, to chill out, that sort of thing. And this wall was stretched between the Firth of Forth and the Firth of Clyde, which are basically two river mouths on either side of Scotland. If you get a map up, if you search Antonine Wall, you'll see exactly where this wall once stood. It was quite a lot more northern then Hadrian's Wall, that's for sure. And despite this swanky new wall, the Caledonians still raided. The whole point of this wall was to stop Caledonians coming down and raiding Britain because the Roman Britons were getting bored of these savages in Scotland coming down and raiding on them, killing them, stealing their stuff. So they thought, we'll build a more northern wall that can stop them. But it really didn't. Of course, what's the point of being even more northern even more further away from civilization and even colder if the point of this wall is doing sod all. So this wall was abandoned by 165 AD. It was like just over 20 years this wall was established as Rome's northernmost border. And what happened was everyone just went back down to Hadrian's Wall. That's why that wall was not, not much more well known. When Antonine's wall was constructed and completed, mm. did they completely abandon Hadrian's wall? I don't think they completely abandoned it, but a lot of a lot of stuff moved up to Antonine's wall. I remember because I think we covered Antonine's wall to a little extent in the bit. episode all about Hadrian's wall. While it didn't get completely abandoned, there were still people there. They definitely saw a lot less action Hadrian's wall in that brief time period. So here's an interesting little factoid, Patrick. Mm. When you have these multiple defensive lines, do you know what that concept is called on a strategic basis? Uh, no, I don't. It's called defense in depth. Mm -hmm, that defense makes sense. in depth. So where you'll have two, three, maybe even four lines set mm. up that are defensible points 
so that even if the enemy is able to overrun, they're still going to have to overcome more constructed fortification and defensive entrenchment of one form or another fortification in order to keep going. And it's a form of deterrence, but it's also a way of exhausting the enemy's resources because you get through one, got to get to the other. You get yeah. through that one, you got to go to the other. And it makes it incredibly difficult, especially when you're talking about something like Hadrian's Wall, because there's no going around it unless you're going in the sea. And it's having a swim. Exactly. And I don't exactly know what the Caledonians' capabilities were by sea at that point, but I'm guessing it's probably not significant enough to be able to ferry and support a reasonably sized army that could actually take on stationed and fortified mm. Roman legions, which we talked about this when we were talking about Hadrian's Wall. That had to be one of the worst postings of all time. Yeah, so imagine being even further, but Scotland gets cold, Northern England gets cold. Yeah, imagine going even further than that. You're going to be freezing. Cold and wet. That's and how I see it. And alone, you're, yeah. You're yeah. so far away from, obviously you're further away from the rest of Roman Britain, but even being that far away from Rome itself, it must have an effect on you. I mean, you must have felt like you were on the other side of the planet. I, and yeah. I, and I know that there were small communities and businesses that would pop up around, like, say, Hadrian's Wall, because it's a tremendous business opportunity there with all those soldiers stationed, because they have a few shekels to spend, to say the least. And they have to spend it on something. You know, one can't <laughs> always make their own alcohol in their ancient no. bathtub. Not anybody should be making their own alcohol <laughs> today. Uh, let's make that clear. Warning, warning. No moonshining. <laughs> At the very least, don't talk about it. But definitely share it. Because what's the fun of making moonshine if you can't go blind with your friends? <laughs> anyway, so I, I find this interesting. How long exactly, again, did Antonine's Wall last? Because it didn't have that same endurance in terms oh, of purpose. Not long. Just over 20 years. So from my records, from my note-taking, construction began in 142 AD. And it was abandoned by 165 AD. So just over 20 years, even that, these things take a while to build. It could have been just, just about 20 years, yeah. And it also speaks to Antoninus Pius and his desire for stability and peace. Because while wars can be very profitable, they are also a major investment. And it also shows us how Hadrian knew the land better. Like Hadrian had actually visited Britain so he knew, no, this is as far as we need to go, where someone like Antoninus Pius, who never visited Britain, to him it was just a map. Go, no, why don't we just go go a bit higher? Why don't we just do that? But obviously, unless you actually know the lay of the land, you're going to realise it's not as easy as just going a bit more northern. And that was, while, while Pius had many great qualities, I guess his, his lack of knowledge of his own empire and his actual geogra geography was a bit of a downfall. Many other emperors would undoubtedly suffer from the same thing. Hmm. In the case of Hadrian's Wall, isn't it almost at one of the, the shallowest points of the neck on, on the island of Britain? Possibly, yeah. One of the yeah, most narrow points of the neck, I should yeah, say. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a narrower point. It's that it doesn't go from like East Anglia to Wales, because that's where the widest point is. It definitely doesn't do that. It's, it's, it's at the more tapered end of Britain. And before we continue on, let's stop and have a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Now, Patrick. What you're about to go into really could serve as its own proper episode, which, of course, is the absolutely insane. We thought the year of the four emperors was insane. That has nothing by comparison <laughs> on the year of the five emperors, where we have an incredible political conflagration 
the Pax Romana is over, and we haven't seen a good emperor for quite some time at this point. <laughs> yeah, so this really could have been an episode unto itself, but I think we we're just both so busy. We ended up talking about Asia, didn't we? Japan and China during this time period instead. Yep. But th that's why we do this, what we miss, so we can talk about this stuff we forgot about. And this is the year of the five emperors, and I've only got the, some bare bone notes on it here, but it should yeah. give you an idea of the of the manicness that took over Rome and this in this time. And it all began with a Commodus's assassination on the 31st of December, 1992 AD. And this plunged Rome into a state of panic and there was no real direct next emperor. Uh, so many were trying to get on the throne, quote unquote, achieve the power and have Rome for themselves. And this led to a 365 day span in which five different people claimed to rule the empire. And we had Pertinax first. Before becoming emperor, he was proconsul of Africa. So he held quite a high position there. And he was emperor for 90 days. And he fell out with many people. I think he fell out with the, a lot of the common people and the higher ups. And he also really didn't want the job. He was really, oh, he was forced into it. Very much, oh. very much so. He was not pleased about this. <laughs> So kind of lucky he was only emperor for 90 days. And one of his most unpopular opinions was, I, I didn't know exactly why, but he charged people to buy their property back that Commodus confiscated from them. So he's like, yes, yeah, that house you got taken away from you, you can pay to have it back. So that uh, angered people. And like we've seen so many times, he was murdered by the Praetorian Guard and he died on the 28th of March, 193 AD. He was followed by a guy called Didius Julianus, and he got the title of emperor by bribing the Praetorian Guard. And he was emperor for roughly about nine weeks before governors turned on him. And he too was murdered on the 1st of June, 193 AD. So once again, not, not that long as emperor. And after his death, a big old civil war broke out in Rome. Things really got a bit out of hands of sorts. And on one side was a guy called Gaius Persinius Niger, who in the chaos declared himself emperor, though he didn't have too much luck and he died shortly afterwards as well. And also someone else being claimed emperor was a general Clodius Albinus, and he was claimed emperor for a spell too. I believe he was based in Britain and it was the people of Britain who declared this guy should be our emperor, he should be our emperor, but that didn't last too long either. And... This civil war actually outlasted somewhat the year of the five emperors. It lasted from 193 to 197 AD. And it kind of came to a head with Septimius Severus as he was declared emperor. And he was able to stabilize power after this hectic time. And he ruled till about 211 AD. So his reign will still be carrying on as we enter the third century of AD history. Now I'm going off of the head here. Was it that he bribed the Praetorian Guard? I seem to remember at this point in time, somebody got the big idea of auctioning off the the position of emperor. At this point of chaos, I wouldn't be too surprised if they were auctioning off emperor. Why not, eh? Yeah, so in, in the case of Marcus Didius Severus Julianus, just better known as Didius Julianus, they call it an auction, but it was really a high-stakes negotiation. And he was really interested in putting up some top dollar to get into that position. 
I guess you get what you pay for. <laughs> what, yeah. What's the rule here? Yeah. What's the rule here? This could have gotten an entire episode onto itself, but it definitely yeah. speaks to just how chaotic things got after the death of Marcus Aurelius and just how badly things went after Commodus came to power that they had completely thrown away so much of the stability and mechanism of transferring power, though they never had a, a truly established one where the best was most certainly going to be chosen the most worthy. And in the case of Marcus Aurelius, he just had the bad fortune of having a son that could serve as an heir and ended up being a total disaster. <laughs> yeah. And I think it just sort of shows us how quickly things can change. Like for, for so long now, for so many episodes of AD history during the second century, we were talking about the five good emperors and how they brought Rome to new heights and new pinnacles. This was this a lot of this period was seen seen as Rome's golden best age, day, Rome's golden age. Yeah, their best times. The and Pax Romana, the Roman the peace. Yeah, and it just it all went it all went to shit so quickly. Oh goodness gracious, did it! ever go to hell yeah so while there is still so much more that we can cover we're gonna yeah. finish up this episode in just a moment after a moment from ad with something we haven't done before but we think you'll like so stick around for that us here you there and we'll be back right after a word from anna domini this is the ad history podcast keep up with the show and join the discussion by following ad history on twitter with the handle at ad history bc and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And we are back. So we just wanted to do something a little bit different to end this one on. It's something we've talked about for a while now between ourselves. And we're, we're going to do it. And we just want to suggest some books to you guys we've been reading recently. Yeah, specifically books in history, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. And we've been meaning to do this for a while now because I feel like if you're doing AD history, you're doing it the way we're doing it. We should be at least be giving you some suggested reading. Now, not all of these, certainly not in my case, will be necessarily from the times that we have covered, but they will yeah. definitely be within the scope of the epoch of the show. So you're not going to get something about the Bronze Age collapse or something like that. But there's some, there are just some really yeah. good reads out there that you can find anywhere, whether it be digitally, Kindle, you know, softback, hardback, audiobook, all of that good stuff. And something for you guys to look into if you're interested. And if you do end up reading it, let me know. Let us know. Let us know. We're interested to find if you followed up on any of these because these are truly exceptional. We think they're very special. Some of them you may have heard of before. Some of them are newer releases. But all the same, we most definitely want to share with you real quick in a nice hit-and-run fashion. So, Patrick, have at it, Hoss. Cool. So I'm starting things off with kind of two books in one. Um, these are two books that kind of similar one of them is called The History of the World in Bite-Sized Chunks by Emma Marriott. And the other one is called A Little History of the World by E.H. Gombrich. Um, briefest of brief overviews of all of world history from like the Big Bang 
to roughly now. Uh, the the bite-sized chunks one I mentioned is I think a little over 200 pages long and it it was one of the first books I read to prepare for this podcast. I think I even suggested it to yourself, Paul, when um, I first read it. I ended up getting it, yeah. Yeah, and as for E.H. Gombrich's A Little History of the World, if I could tell one person to read just one history book, it would be this. It's so beautifully written. So it's from the 30s, I believe, or maybe a bit after. Um, it was originally released as a children's history book, and it's so wonderfully written, and it's so easy to read, and it explains how things flowed into one another. It explains how this happened, and that make this happen. And it's just it's wonderful. Like I said, if I could tell one person to read one history book for their life, it would be this one, because it explains more or less everything, what happened in the past, and it explains the consequences of how that affected future people, which is something I think we try to do here on AD History and look into how these things rolled into one another and just not look at history in a vacuum. Very, very true, because it's impossible to look and understand history in a vacuum. If you don't have what came before and the circumstances and all the context and nuance that goes into that history, you're heading forward towards, an, at the very best, an intellectual disaster. So having that scope and understanding how things flow into the other and how they were thinking about it at the time is at the very core of AD history, no doubt. Mm. Paul, what have you got for us? One of these first recommendations, this is one I actually started very recently. It's called The Men Who Lost America by Andrew Jackson mm. O'Shaughnessy. And this is the reason why this is particularly interesting, is it has to do with the American Revolution. But as we mm -hmm. know, the vast majority of histories about the American Revolution are primarily done from the perspective of the revolutionaries and the colonists and what exactly was happening uniquely to the events that are occurring physically, palpably in North America in the 13 colonies at the time. This is very different. This is something that is very, very special. This is about the American Revolution from the perspective of the British, specifically mm. and primarily the top policymakers in London who are directing the war. Like, for example, the Prime Minister, Lord North, or, of course, George III, figures such as this, as well as folks like Henry Clinton, who was one of the big generals in the second half of the war that was there in America, or Lord Cornwallis being another one who most people will know of him through his depiction in Mel Gibson's The Patriot, which is it's an entertaining film, but it's definitely not what one would call great history in many respects. It it's entertaining. I don't, have you ever seen The Patriot, Patrick? No, no, I haven't, but it sounds interesting from your description. It, it, it is interesting. And if you know anything about that, the American Revolution and the colonial experience at the time, you know that there are some definite glaring inaccuracies. But, you mm. know, at the end of it, you just can't help but just pop up and say and punk your chest, USA, USA, <laughs> you know, it, it's one it of those have had the same effect on me. <laughs> I, I, I truly doubt it. <laughs> but it's really fascinating because you don't get that perspective because most of the history has been written by us, the Americans, about what was happening here and very seldom. And for the most part, we know about the American Revolution on the British side and top circles only through impressions that we have regarding George III. And not all of those are even terribly accurate. His, his no. feelings towards the colonies changed over time. His image changed over time. You know, his lowest point was losing the 13 colonies in North America. But then he ended up becoming a far greater image when Britain was 
standing through and eventually victoring in the Napoleonic Wars. So in your country, George III has two very, very different images and two very similar pieces in time. So he finishes off a lot stronger than he started. And I would very strongly suggest this to anybody that is curious about that other side of it, because I love histories that turn on its head and think about perspectives we don't always consider at all, even scholarly. Yeah, so um, that does sound so interesting. I would have to give that one a read myself, because I would yeah. love to know more about the American Revolution and the War of Independence. And that sounds like such a great angle, especially for my own personal choice here my country's side of the history that should be really interesting but speaking of american history yeah my second book uh is very much about american history and it is called the mammoth book of native americans and it's edited by john e lewis and this is pretty much exactly what it sounds like it's a big old dense book all about the history of native americans it does predate ad to some extent but before you know it, you're learning all about Spanish arrival in America, the uh, English arrival there. The French. The French, and just the demise of much of Native American land and culture. And this book, it, it does more than just tell the history. It's got so many appendices. Appendices. Appendices, however you pronounce that word. And it's just extra tidbits, like extra uh, myths about the Native American, different tribes, different maps. It, it's a great book. Sometimes it feels like you're reading a massive Wikipedia page. It's very, it's a very clinically written book. It's just here's a load of information about Native Americans. But if you want like a one-stop shop for all things and everything Native American, this is the book I'd recommend. And then maybe go on to read more specific stories like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, those sort of uh, books that are more specific about specific events and written with a bit more emotion. Because this book is great but it is a bit clinical and sterile at times in the way it presents information. There's such a large, complex history with what it mm. takes on. Sometimes it can be difficult to weave that into a super enjoyable flowing narrative where somebody can just pick it up and, and lose themselves. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know if this book is exactly that. It was quite a long read and it's quite a big, dense book. If you're like me, you know very little, but want to know a lot, it's a great place to start. Like I said, it... It's like reading the Wikipedia. It's like reading a Wikipedia page at times. Hopefully it's just a bit more accurate yeah. on the whole, even though yeah. Wikipedia generally is pretty accurate. Mm. They do a good job at trying to make that the case. My next pick is something that's really interesting to me, at least. I think some of you will find it interesting as well. It's called The Kremlin Letters, Stalin's wartime correspondence with Churchill and Roosevelt, and is primarily edited by... David Reynolds, and we've mentioned David Reynolds in the show before. He is primarily based at Christ College, Cambridge. He's one of the foremost scholarly experts in international diplomacy during First World War, the interwar period, World War II, and the Cold War. And what the Kremlin Letters is, he examines the actual written diplomacy that existed between all members of what Churchill eventually ended up calling in his World War II memoirs, the Grand Alliance. And this is particularly interesting because if you know anything about World War II, you know that the crux of the defeat of Nazi Germany, which was the primary theater of the war, even though there was fighting in significant numbers all, all other places. But after Operation Barbarossa on the 22nd of June 1941, you had at times upwards of 150 Axis divisions 
that are in mm. the Soviet Union trying to conquer it. We're talking about between three and four million troops when you count all of the Axis satellites that invaded. It's the largest military operation in human history. Wow. Yes. And mm. naturally, the Soviets lose between 25 and 30 million of their own people. That's combatants and non-combatants. The Germans, in terms of losses in combat, will lose 80% of the troops they do on the Eastern Front. So it's the definitive, decisive theater of the war. And so all of the international diplomacy that really matters after the 22nd of June is going through Moscow and making sure we keep Stalin in the game. He doesn't make a separate peace with Hitler. And he does a fantastic job of analyzing not just the written communication of it, because he looks at it from a somewhat modern perspective. We think of how easy communication is today. At that period of time, something that you and I are doing right now in making the show would be yeah, absolutely witchcraft. unthinkable. Absolute witchcraft, without a doubt. And so yeah. he breaks that down as well as the various diplomatic interests and interactions and how these three work together on a diplomatic level. And that, that includes, of course, the Casablanca conference that crops up. You know, you have Quebec. Then, of course, you have things like Tehran. They have the Cairo conference. You have Yalta. And it really does a fascinating job at seeing exactly how these guys were interacting with each other, what their interests were, and exactly how they were pursuing their own interests in the war. And David Reynolds is well known for doing some fantastic BBC documentaries on this subject, which if you're on YouTube, just type in David Reynolds and you'll mm. find it really entertaining, really engaging. Some of the best documentaries I have ever watched. But if you're interested in a new book that looks into this a bit more in depth through a lens you have maybe never considered, through the eyes and scholarly work of one of the best in the field, the Kremlin Letters, David Reynolds, give it a read. Sounds really interesting, especially the whole analyzing communication at that time, because it's something we often don't sort of factor in thinking about how this was a big deal then. It might seem normal to us, but this would have meant a lot more, like, especially with communication, because it's such an easy, effortless thing now to communicate with people, like as we're doing right now. I just, that would be a much interesting part and something I want to look at. And as for my next suggestion, it's kind of war based as well. Couple of, I don't think I've actually talked to you about this one, Paul, and I'm quite surprised about that. This is a book called Travelers in the Third Reich by Julia Boyd. Its subtitle is The Rise of Fascism Through the Eyes of Everyday People. And yeah. this is a uh, wonderful, very interesting book. And it's obviously you may think it's about World War II or World War One, and it is somewhat is, though it's more about the time between the wars the state of Germany in between those years, Hitler's rise to power and, of course, eventual demise. And it, while it is a written narrative, it's very much a series of accounts. It compiles uh, travel notes and people not from Germany going to visit Germany in this time and just observing how the country was changing. And it's one of those books with pictures in the middle of it. And there's some wonderful like travel uh, brochures by the German travel agency promoting, come visit Germany. We're not evil now, I swear. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> in less words. But even like Thomas Cook, even like a, a, a famous... <laughs> it's just that even stuff from Thomas Cook, um, a famous travel agent here in the UK promoting holidays to Germany. And it was apparently it was a real thing that boys, English boys, would take a year out to visit Germany. And even at the height, you know, just prior to the breakout of war. There's notes of people going on their holidays, their summer holidays to Germany and taking in the site. And it's just the main takeaway from this book 
is how we realize and people don't realize history is happening in front of them and just carrying on like it's the kind of book where you'd be like granddad you went to germany to you went to holiday in Germany like the week before World War II and they'd be like, yeah, we yeah. didn't know at the time. Yeah. And that's what this book cements in. People were just, and that's probably what people were thinking about us now. Like you were just sort of doing stuff during that. Like, yeah, you just, you just get on. And that's a stark reminder that while we look at this period of history, the, the war and the years between the wars as like this mad time, people did just get on with things. And it's a great reminder of that, Paul. I'd really recommend that one for yourself personally and, of course, to all our viewers, listeners. Absolutely. And if I can add an addendum to that, another one would be that's similar in a way. is called The German War by Nicholas Starkart. Uh, he's mm -hmm. a sociologist, historical sociologist who very much does a, a bottom-up view of how Germans experienced the war, how they endured it, and what they thought about it, and their evolving thinking, the nature of how their lives change, lifestyles, all these various sociological elements that mm. really give you an even greater understanding. And of course, there's a very definitive focus as well there should be regarding genocide and the Holocaust yeah. and Germans' attitudes and knowledge towards that. So Nicholas Starkart, The German War, highly recommended. For the next pick on my part is one that came out actually in 2008 by Michael Dobbs. It's called One Minute to Midnight, Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Castro on the Brink of Nuclear War. And what makes this really special is it's about the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it's not just like any book on the Cuban Missile Crisis that had ever been written before and very likely since. He wanted mm -hmm. to do a book that was a day-to-day, hour-by-hour account of the 13 days that was the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. And he does a brilliant job of it. But he does it from not just two perspectives of Washington, Moscow, Kennedy, and Khrushchev. He also includes what was happening in Cuba with Castro. And it's not wow. just a, a top-down look. He finds all of these various little disparate activities that were happening all at the same time that play into a bigger picture that just did not, had not yet gotten absorbed into the greater history. So basically, the idea and the thesis behind this was that it wasn't a matter at one point when things start getting moving, when you're talking about these huge superpowers where there are these incredible number of variables that can change an outcome of something. It wasn't a matter of if Kennedy and Khrushchev in particular wanted to stop this. It was a question of whether they could at one point. Because, of course, mm. Khrushchev makes a severe miscalculation in terms of secretly trying to transport nuclear weapons and setting them up in Cuba, of course, with the welcome and imprimatur of Fidel Castro. And we came very, very close, much closer than anybody would want to believe, to truly reaching one minute to midnight. And if anybody's not familiar with this, I don't know if you are, Patrick, there is a clock. Oh, the doomsday clock. I know exactly. Clock, one minute yeah. to midnight is as close as we've ever gotten to Armageddon from nuclear yeah. war. And it's incredibly well-written, remarkably well-written sucks you in immediately. And the number of sources and the number of elements and everything that is going on, it is truly a magnum opus. And he has done a, another couple of books that are similar to that. One is about 
1945 and the end of the Second World War. And he also did one, of course, on in 1989 about the collapse of the Soviet Union. But yes, One Minute to Midnight, Michael Dobbs, give it a read. It sounds like almost the, the definitive Cuban Missile Crisis book. I don't know if it, he was meant it to be a definitive yeah. one, but to me, it is certainly the most illuminating one where he's truly going an incredible distance yeah. to try to show you exactly how complicated this was and that it was not simply a matter of what Kennedy or Khrushchev or even Castro wanted. It wasn't the question of whether they could stop it or wanted to stop it. It was a question of whether they could. And if you're ever wondering about how these grand incidents happen and get out of hand in a far more modern context, this is the one you have to listen to or read. I'll have to give that one a go. So as for my next book, um, it's actually a book I'm currently in the process of reading. And when I'm not moonlighting as a historical podcaster, as you, I'm sure a lot of you know, <laughs> I am doing my full-time job as a language-based YouTuber. And so the book I'm currently reading is called How Language Began by Daniel Everett. Oh and man, yeah, this is right up your alley. It is rather, but you may be thinking like, this is supposed to be about history books, like... This is, this is a linguistic book, and it is history. It language encompasses pretty much every aspect of human life. You know, this book goes into basic human bio. Or it goes into human biology. It explains how our mouths and throats work for us to produce these sounds that we use to communicate with. Did you know, Paul? No feature of language, none of the organs or bits of our body we use for language serve just the purpose of language they all serve secondary purposes and we've adapted them to be able to speak with and i find that fascinating that's a fascinating look at that yeah you only think about yeah. your linguistic organs mm. simply as linguistic organs but clearly they served other purposes like what i can't say like i said the tongue an example obviously the tongue is vital to how we speak and eat and do a whole bunch of other great stuff exactly but it's, it's primary use is taste it's just it, we've adapted it to help us speak and I'm only midway through it already or so, and this is way before AD, that's for sure, where we're talking about right now. You know, this is Homo herbellus and Hobo, Neand Hobo Neanderthal, Homo Neanderthal um, leaving Africa. Our hominin ancestors. Yeah, it's, it's all that sort of stuff. But it's a really good read. I just thought I'd give that one a mention here as well, because if you are into language or want, it's definitely not what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be more cultural. I didn't expect it to be so... Uh, prehistoric because it is it's a very much a prehistoric book so far i wasn't expecting that but i'm pleasantly surprised at its prehistory that's absolutely fascinating mm. my next pick is one that came out in the early 90s but it stands the test of time and it's probably it's in the running for one of the best biographies i have ever read and it's in the running with a few others the other one it would be in the running with is the multi-volume though not yet complete <laughs> biography of Joseph Stalin by Stephen Cockin. But in this case, we're talking about Truman by David McCullough, not J.J. McCullough, no. David McCullough, who, of course, is at this point a renowned Americanist historian. Starts a little before Truman is born to kind of give and lay a history of the world he would experience, which, of course, was largely Independence, Missouri. And if you've ever been to Independence, Missouri, I have been to Independence, Missouri. You may have not. It's very helpful and it goes all the way to the grave. And it paints such a tremendous picture of who Truman was and what he was all about, and he does not hold back. This is not a hagiography by any means whatsoever, but it is a very 
human biography. In many respects, you can empathize with Truman, even though he's not of our era. In many ways, he was a very 19th century middle American farmer. The Midwest, mm. very much a son of that son of a farmer, was a farmer for a long time himself before he even got into politics. The incredible story of how he ended up as FDR's last vice president and then ended up in the White House within 100 days of FDR's fourth inauguration and having all the stars and the planets come crashing down on him because FDR did next to nothing to make sure that he was ready for this. FDR, <laughs> FDR was kind of shifty. He always told his all-purpose political factotum, Harry Hopkins, I never let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. So Truman was quite <laughs> unprepared. So, and of course, shortly after he dies, because FDR dies in late April of 1945, the war is over a couple of weeks later. So he has to deal with that. But there's still what's going on with Japan. He has to deal with Churchill, Stalin, Atlee, of course, Molotov at the mm -hmm. Potsdam Conference in July of 1945. It's the first time he is inaugurated into the secret of the Manhattan Project and mm. the atomic bombs and the choice to use them. It also goes into great depth about his career in the United States Senate and his career as a local and Missouri politician. It goes into immense depth later in his presidency. It is the best account that exists of the 1948 election between Harry Truman and governor of New York, Dewey, on both sides, as well as his later life. There may not be a better presidential biography, and that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot, hmm. especially when you have things like Ron Chernow or, or Doris Kearns Goodwin's Lincoln team of rivals, which I also really heavily recommend. It's incredibly human, and oddly enough, Truman made it possible because his personal correspondences with people, and especially his wife, were so voluminous, and so many of them survived. So you have contemporaneous thinking on paper that's completely unfiltered that Truman most certainly never expected to become public, that, of course, David McCullough had access to, probably a great deal of which was thanks to the Truman Presidential Library, which, of course, is in his home, Independence, Missouri. Mm. Now, I know you have your last pick, Patrick. Yeah, so my last pick is actually uh, a book I haven't read yet, I must admit, but it's been on my shelf for so long now. And I just thought it was really appropriate to the sort of time period of history we're in. And this book is called Veni Vidi Visi, Everything You Wanted to Know About the Romans But Were Too Afraid to Ask. I love the title, love the title. Yes, exactly. Um, so like I said, I haven't actually read it myself, but I remember being alerted to it in the bookshop I bought it from. And it's just a load of silly questions answered about Roman life. Like, did they really like all go to the toilet together? Did they really have a room for vomiting in? I believe it's just silly questions like that answered and explained. And I just thought it'd be worth mentioning here because so much of what we're looking at at the moment in AD history is Roman. I should really get on reading that one at some point. Maybe when I finish my uh, language book, I'll start to read that one. Undoubtedly. And my yeah. last pick for today is actually something that I've used for the show quite extensively, and it's truly fantastic. It's called The Silk Roads, that's plural, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World by Peter Frankopin. And the basic idea behind this, and this goes well into ancient history from the first cities that you find in Mesopotamia, and it very much focuses on what we would call Eurasia, which is 
far as I'm concerned, and certainly from a scholarly standpoint, its own region of the world. It's not East Asia. It's not Europe. It's not Africa. It's not even the Middle East. It's its own thing. What we consider to be Russia, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, things like that, certain parts mm. of Eastern Turkey that are Eurasia, that were absolute throughputs for the Silk Road. And he's telling their history, and in many cases, the history of the world, because it goes right into modernity, which is the amazing part about it, of how civilization grew and developed due to this economic activity, the impact that it had on countless different things from culture, society in general, politics, war, geopolitical calculations, all of it. It is an absolute masterstroke. I've used it for the show as a source many times now. He is most certainly one of the most revered historians in this regard. And uh, there are very few things that are a more unique take on history that tell a greater story and using the lens that he does. Sounds super interesting, Paul. I'll have to read that one. Well, obviously, I want to read all of these myself, but definitely that one. If you've used it so much for AD history, I should have got. I should have started reading it a bit sooner. No better time to start <laughs> when you have a new book on the shelf and ready to read. I think we've established that there's so many books out there for us to read, Paul. We will never be able to consume them no. all. No. Well, we hope you enjoy this, guys. AD history, what we missed the second century, and giving you some insight into the sources and history that we are reading that we think you might enjoy as well. Always like thank you for joining us in this season. Next time you hear from us, it's going to be AD History Season 3, the beginning of the 3rd century. We're cracking on, Patrick. We're cracking on. We are cracking on. It's, it's just all going so quickly. We will be an eighth, or more or less an eighth of the way through our entire span during the 3rd century, I believe. Boom, shakalaka, boom. That feels like a real dent. That feels like a genuine dent and eighth. A genuine accomplishment. And we all thank you so much for listening and to continue to support the show. It wouldn't be worth it without you. Without a doubt, you bring so much to the table. It is you listening to us wherever you may be listening that truly matters. And of course, beginning of the third century, 80 history season three, in which case we will see you in two weeks. But now we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye. Thank you and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. 
Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at ADHistoryPodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.